One of the great struggles of um, probably every culture is the battle between old and new. The argument is, which is better? What we've done in the past or what's ahead of us in the future? Which, which, is, which is more important, the way we've always done it or to think about new ways to do it? You see this struggle of old and new all throughout our culture. It, it is a, becomes one of the, the philosophical perspectives about how we interpret our constitution, about how we interpret uh, all the things of our lives, education, so many things. It's a struggle, this battle between old and new, and the church is not exempt from that. We all know that, right? I mean, if you look back in the history of the church... A great number of the church's disagreements have been less theological and more about old and new. And we see that happening continually as we wrestle being the church between this is what we have always believed. No, this is what we believe now. This is what we've always done. No, this is how we do it now. And we have this struggle. And the problem is all of this is always presented as either or. But when you read the scriptures, you find that God is very interested in both and. It's one of the tensions. And one of the problems with this struggle, particularly when we think of it as either or, is that not only is it about our theology, not only is it about our practice, but ultimately it becomes about who God is, how we understand God. And there are people who will say the only thing that really matters is the New Testament. And there are people who say all that really matters is the Old Testament. And there is, this, there is this sense and if, as if what we were saying is, and, and some people proclaim this, there is a God of the Old Testament and there is a different God of the New Testament. Because after all, God says, I'm doing something new. But when God talks about doing something new, it is not so much different as it is expanded and enhanced. And everything that we believe in the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is not different from the God of the New Testament. He is the same God, the same nature, the same characteristics, the same kingdom. It is just revealed to us a little bit differently. And I think it's imperative for us to understand that and to understand that as, as uh, Hebrews writes about Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That there is this thread all throughout the scriptures that God is who God is, period. And when we come to the day of Pentecost that we are celebrating today, the day that we just read about, rooted in the story we read in Acts chapter 2 today, there is sometimes a sense in the church in which we are now entering into something different, something that God, something new about God that we've never experienced before. But the reality is that's not the case. When the Holy Spirit comes, he reveals 
maybe a different, a different picture of God for us, but it's the same God, doing the same things, caring about the same things. It's at the heart of this day. The whole idea of Pentecost goes back to the passage we read in Leviticus 23. Actually, you could find it in Exodus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16. They continually repeated. There are three, there are three major festivals in the Jewish faith when males, Jewish males were commanded to come to Jerusalem or to the central place of worship. The Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, that relates back to the Exodus and God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, that relates to the people living in the wilderness for 40 years and God caring for them. And on that festival of seven, eight days, they create sort of like little lean-tos that they move out of their houses and they live in these places for during this whole week. And they, and they learn about God and they retell the stories And that becomes one of the central days. And the third one in the middle is the Feast of Weeks. It's called the Feast of Weeks because it said in the passage, you count off seven weeks from the Passover to the end of it. It's called Pentecost because the word Pentecost in Greek means 50. And so you count off these 50 days and it becomes this, and it's this festival of Pentecost that the Israelites celebrate. That's why when this passage begins and says, it was the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came. This, the feast, the celebration of Pentecost in the Old Testament eventually came to be connected with two, two central events. One of them was the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the Torah. The Jews had a, they have a, a, a theory that there are 50 days between when the people come out of Egypt and when God gives Moses the law on the mountain. So you have that 50 day there as well. And they celebrate that in this day. It is the law, it's the time of, of God initiating his covenant with his people. And he says to them, I'm going to be your, you're going to be my people, I will be your God, and here's the law to help you know what it means to be my people and what, what I have, the kind of God that I am entering into this covenant with you. But the second part of this day, and probably the most profound part of this day, common part of it, is that it is the, it is the beginning of the first fruits of the harvest. In the early part of, the part of spring, when the, after the planting has taken place and the crops begin to grow, and they bring in that first harvest, that first fruits, they bring it in and they are so grateful to God for Him blessing them that they bring their sacrifices to the temple in gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And they have this day of celebration, giving thanks to God for his abundance. The question that I've been asking myself as I've been pondering this today is, why Pentecost? Why does the Holy Spirit come on Pentecost? Now, there's a pragmatic answer to that. It's because it's the first of the three big Jewish holidays and feast festivals after the resurrection. But I think there's more going on than that. It it is pragmatic in the sense that because it's one of those special days, people are in Jerusalem from all over the world. And so as the gospel is preached, 
These people from all over the world hear it, and then they go back to their homes and share the gospel in all of these places that were described here in Acts chapter 2. But I think there is something else that's connected to the actual festival itself. Because God, the the festival of, of Pentecost for the Jews was a time of celebrating the abundant blessings of God. I don't know that we, I think we sort of take for granted how important the land is to Israel. One of the things that they talk about in Deuteronomy is my father was a wandering Aramean. He had no land. He had no place to put down stakes. He was a nomad. And God brings them out and says, I'm going to give you a land. And it's fascinating to see how many times... God says to them when he brings them out of Egypt and all throughout the wilderness is, here's where we're headed, to the land, the promised land. I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the land. And I will make it abundant. Their response to God as his people is to obey him. And God says, my connection to you as part of the covenant is to bless you. And to bless you abundantly. And when God sends the Holy Spirit, now he's saying to followers of Jesus, the same blessing that I poured out upon my people then, I'm pouring it out upon you now. This is a sign now of my covenant with you. This is the sign that I am with you. The Holy Spirit is coming upon you, and I will pour out blessings in abundance upon you. I love the fact that right after the passage, it's kind of an odd place to stop that passage, wasn't it? I, I actually thought as we were reading that, we should have gone on a little more, a couple more verses. Uh, someone said to me after first service, I just thought the sermon was going to be about wine. That's all I, getting drunk, that's all I could tell. But actually, right after that, Peter steps up and he starts preaching. And the first thing he says is, the prophet Joel said, the day is coming when the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you, my people. I love the fact that twice he says the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you. Not a trickle. Not a little bit. When I think of that word poured out, I think of Niagara Falls. If you've ever been stood there at the falls and watched the water cascading over, it is phenomenal. Over 3,000 tons and over 57 thousand gallons of water flows over the edge of the falls every second. And when God says, I am pouring out my spirit upon you, he doesn't give his blessings as trickles. He's abundant with them. And the same God who was abundant with Israel in the land and they brought forth this crop as a sign of God's presence and blessing with them, this same God says, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit as the sign of my blessing and abundance upon you. And I will give you every ounce of the Holy Spirit that you can take. It's abundant. I think we struggle with that reality. I think that's the reason why we live in such fear. I think that's why we so often live with the mindset of scarcity. We're not really sure that God is the abundant God that he has promised to be. And so we have to hold on. We have to hoard. We have to, we're greedy. We have to, we have to grasp everything that we can. 
We're hesitant to give it away freely because what if God doesn't come through for us? We give away the gifts of the Holy Spirit to others. We use them for others. We give away our time, our talents, our treasures. We give it away because we believe that the God who is abundant will restore us and will replenish us so that we can keep giving more. It's one of the reasons why this year in our budget, we decided as a finance committee and the elders spent a lot of time talking about this and pondering this and praying about it. And we finally came to the realization that maybe we've been operating in a mindset of scarcity. We don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church of faith and trust and taking steps that are risky. We want to believe that God can do more than what we can envision with our human eyes and minds. And so we we put almost a 5% increase in the budget this year because we believe God's going to do bigger things than what we could do ourselves. And we want to create an atmosphere among us of faith and trust and not fear and scarcity. But here's what we have to understand. The reason we're doing that is not so we can hoard more. It's so we can share more. We've increased the budget so that we have more resources to nurture the faith of our children and our youth. We've increased our our financial plan so that we have more resources to disciple one another and to care for one another. We've increased our financial plan so that we have more resources to go out into the communities around us and out into the world in bigger ways. Because God always blesses his people abundantly so that we can be abundant blessers of others. That God, God blesses people so that we can be channels of blessing. That's what he says to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, he calls him out and he says, Abraham, I want, to, I want you to go and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing and through you the nations will be blessed. God says to, to the disciples, Jesus says to the disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you so that you can be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God's abundance is not to hoard. God's abundance is not to, to clutch. And, and we're not getting this so that like the parable Jesus tells, we can just build bigger barns. We have it so that we have more to give away. Which is exactly what God intended for his people to do when they got into the land. He may, I find it, I'm always fascinated at, at the, the way God just sort of subtly tacks on things to what he says that might seem insignificant and might well be the most important part of it. And so you come to Leviticus 23 and God says, here's how, here's what you do at this festival. When you bring in the first fruits of the harvest, you come, you sacrifice, you give, you, you give thanks, you, you make it known how grateful you are. And then he says, but one more thing, don't you dare hoard what you have. He says, don't glean to the edges of your fields. And don't pick up every piece of grain lying on your fields. You leave it for the poor and the foreigners among you. You leave it for the people who had absolutely nothing to do with sowing 
that harvest and nurturing that crop, you leave it for them because I want to be abundant to them too. And God gets pretty upset when people say, you know what, we've been through the field three times. Let's go one more time. Make sure we didn't miss any grapes. Let's walk the fields once more to make sure there's not any loose pieces of grain still lying on the ground. And why would people do that? Because they don't really believe that God is who he says he is. If we don't pick it all up, if we don't get every single piece we possibly can, we may be in trouble because we can't really trust God. And so God says, look, I'm blessing you abundantly with the Holy Spirit so that you can share everything the Spirit has given you. But remember this. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming is not first and foremost mission. It's presence. The primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming, the first purpose of the, prime, of the Spirit's coming, is not mission, it's presence. It's what the Holy Spirit does in us so that we have something to share with people who need to know about Jesus. When we get that mixed up, when we think that the present, the coming of the Holy Spirit is first about mission, it is a short journey from doing it the right way to doing it anyway. It's amazing how quickly the church through the centuries, when it has been said that mission is first and foremost rather than presence, how often and how easily we slide into the mindset of the end justifies the means. All you have to do is think about all the ways in which the various factions of the church persecuted each other through the centuries. And so often we talk so much about about mission in the church and it's important. Mission is vital. It's significant. But if we don't have presence first, what are we sharing in our mission? Because people don't need mission. People need Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes to fill us and to be present with us, to make us like Christ, to make us holy, so that we have resources, so we have something to share. And what is it, what is it we share? We share Jesus. Otherwise, without the presence, we're going to end up sharing ourselves. And the world doesn't need you and me. The world needs Jesus. When you look back at Exodus, you find that as God brings the people out of Egyptian slavery and, and he, Moses goes up to the mountain and he gets the law, the Torah, and he comes down with it. And that's the moment when he comes back and he finds the whole golden, golden calf debacle. And, and, and God says to Moses, you know what? These people are really getting on my nerves. Uh, I'm, I'm just about had enough. You know, a parent, you're like, you know, you're right up here. And Moses says, but we need you. And God says, you're right. He said, I'll be with you. 
And in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses says, Lord, if you aren't with us, we don't want to leave this place. If we don't have your presence, then for us to leave here would be worthless. But then he says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And how will anyone distinguish us from all the other people of the world if you don't go with us? What is it that sets us apart? Is it that we have a great mission? No, it's the presence of God. It's the presence of God that sets us apart. And it's from having the presence of God that then we go out in mission. And the mission is vitally important. And reaching out to the world is extremely important. It is vital to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But only as a response to presence. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon, comes on Pentecost, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is settle on the disciples. And then, once, the, they, once, they, once they have his presence, then they go out in courage and faith and life and hope. I think one of the struggles that, that we have with 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 saying realize understanding that it's the presence first is that we get so easily get wrapped up in seeing the holy spirit and seeing god at work in us as a moment an experience something extraordinary sometimes we're taught that 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 you you know the spirit is moving because something extraordinary happens and it certainly does for the people on this Pentecost, first Pentecost day. No doubt about that. But I was talking with an Old Testament scholar last week, and, and they made the comment that it's, it's significant that the Holy Spirit does not come on Passover. Because Passover is that one-time event in the history of God's people, that one moment, never to be repeated, and if the Holy Spirit came on the celebration of that day, then the most natural thing in the world for God's people would be to look for that moment and to look for those moments as the identifying marker of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we need another ecstatic experience. We need another one of those experiential moments. We need this, this extraordinary event That's how we'll know it's you. But it's fascinating, and it is significant, that the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. The state that celebrates the first fruits, the harvest. If you live in an agrarian culture, what is more common than the harvest? I mean, it doesn't happen once in your lifetime. It happens multiple times a year, and it happens every year. Every year, you sow, you reap. 
Every year you sow, you reap. You keep coming back next year, you sow, you reap. And it keeps happening over and over and over again. It is, it is one of the most common practices of people in an agrarian culture. You sow, you reap. And I think it's significant that the Holy Spirit comes on a day that is celebrating something so common. It's not that God doesn't periodically give us extraordinary experiences. But the presence of the Holy Spirit might be most proven not in our extraordinary experiences, but in who we are in our homes that we're with every day. And who we are in our workplaces and the interactions we have every day. And who we are with our neighbors that we encounter every day. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is one more experience. The fruit of the Spirit is an extraordinary moment. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is most evident in common, everyday, maybe mundane life. Who are we when we're not anticipating an experience? We're just living our lives. And the problem with looking for, again, God does give us extraordinary experiences sometimes. But when our whole focus is on the next experience, all we're thinking about is something out there. And all the while, we are missing God at work in our daily lives. We're missing God at work in the conversations we have in our homes and with our co-workers and with our neighbors. We're missing God in the very common, mundane, everyday life. Because we're looking for that experience. I remember when I, Christmas, probably I was maybe eight, seven, eight years old. I don't remember exactly the, the year. But one of the gifts that I wanted for Christmas was a Hot Wheels track. You all know about Hot Wheels, right? Uh, I brought a car with me this morning. A Hot Wheels car. You know, it runs on these tracks. I was going to set it up here, but, you know, then it would be distracting. But, uh, you know, the car runs on this track. And you set it up, you got turns, and you, know, you can make figure eights and all kinds of things with it. And I remember having loads of fun, myself, my friends, you know, setting up different kinds of tracks and, and you know, running the cars around. And, and you can do a lot of things with them. You, you, can, you can set them up high on like on a stack of books or something and race them down the hill. But one of the, I, I discovered pretty quickly that one of the great inventions that Mattel made in doing the, doing Hot Wheels was this this piece of uh, machinery, I guess you could call it, called a supercharger. This is actually my supercharger from when I was a kid. Now, see, you hang on to your stuff, and you never know it might be a sermon illustration. So just so you know, right? You just never know. 
this little thing has a couple of, of rubber uh, pieces that are going around and they're spin around. And when you, it runs on batteries and when you turn it on, you hear this noise and they just spin at fast revolutions. And the track is connected to both sides of it. And you put your car in and when it hits those wheels, it shoots it out the other side. And if you've done your track right, it'll come around to the circle and come back and enter in. Kind of, usually it kind of is limping into the end of it as it's wearing, running out of steam. And it gets in there and it shoots it out again. And it just keeps doing that over and over and over again. And you can stand back. You don't have to run your hands across the cars. It's a great tool for playing with Hot Wheels. It struck me that so many of us live our lives live focused on looking for supercharger moments. All we want to do is get to the next electrifying moment that can shoot us into the circle. And we live our lives and they keep, they wane and, and we tire and we wear down and hoping we can just get to the next moment. And hopefully we get there and it shoots us out and then we have another ecstatic experience and we're ready to go again until we start waning and slowing down and hopefully we can get to another one. And God just becomes for us somebody who can supercharge us. But when you read the scriptures, God seems to love to describe relationship with him as walking. Noah walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Moses walked with God. David walked with God. And when you come to the New Testament, Paul loves to talk about, use the phrase, walking in the Spirit. We give thanks to God for supercharger moments. They're awesome. They're terrific. But the real evidence of the Holy Spirit in us is our walking. Our daily walking with Jesus. And letting the Holy Spirit work in us and through us. In ways that quite frankly we might not even realize he was doing. Until sometime down the road. Maybe not even until eternity. The call of Pentecost is to be so open to the Spirit that we become new people who walk in the Spirit. That we might be channels of the abundant blessings of God to people who don't know God. To people who are broken and discouraged and hurting and aimless. We do it because God is with us abundantly through His Spirit, moment by moment by moment. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Make us people, make us people who want you. To walk with you. To walk in your spirit. That we might be channels of blessing.
of your abundant grace. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.